I think the most important thing is just to love your students. I mean, to, like if you really care, first of all, they know. They also know when you care less. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so there's no faking it with young people. And they forgive you so much and they appreciate so much, you know, like you log in on the wrong link and you screw up the homework assignment and you forgot to tell them that there was extra credit. But if you really care, mm. and we've all been students, right? So we know this in our hearts, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, somebody really cares about you then the rest is detail, you know? And so um, I'm not a perfect teacher, but I really care about my students. Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, your host, CEO and president of Search Institute, where our own research over the past 60 years has found relationships to be the roots that all young people need to grow and thrive. I'm incredibly excited about today's guest. The topic at hand is character, and I can't think of a better person to talk about character than Angela Duckworth. And I have to say, not just because of what Angela Duckworth has done as a scholar, as a researcher, as a scientist, but really who she is. And I've been excited to get to know her over the last couple of years. I've been in her classroom and seen her teach and her passion for her students and really wanting to make science applicable to all people to, to help them thrive, especially youth. And then also how she does and runs nonprofit organization called Character Lab and her employees of the culture she creates there. And so I'm excited to talk to you today, Angela, because I know you'll have incredible scientific tidbits for us and wisdom, but also that you'll be able to talk from your own experience. So welcome to our podcast and thank you so much for your time. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I think I've said this to you several times, but I have no idea how you do all that you do. You have uh, <laughs> have kind of, you have so many things going on and you continue to write and teach and engage in different ways in the scientific community. And I'm curious, I want to hear a little bit about what brought you to this point, you know, since you're, if the viewers or, or the listeners have not heard your your TED Talks, of course, they should go hear the TED Talks. But that was a while back now. And now a lot has changed. And so I would love for you to walk us through kind of your history, your growing up, where you came from, and what brought you to really uh, want to study this topic. I am 51 years old. And I think it's safe to say, even as an optimist, that I'm like over the halftime mark in life. And I've always thought, you know, actually, even since I was a little kid, I've always thought about like, basically the finite nature of our existence. And I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, in the you know, a pretty strong public school system. My parents had immigrated from China. And I um, had in many ways, like a very you know, like 16 candles adolescence. So big high school, et cetera. When I say that, like, even as a kid, I thought about the finite nature of life. I remember I went through this phase as teenagers do, we go through phases, right? As yes. teenagers. But I went through this phase where I was like, only I wanted to read books about death. So like, <laughs> I, read, I read like how we die and death be not proud. And anyway, and I do think that having some sense that, you know, whatever your beliefs about the afterlife or about, you know, how the cosmos works, I mean, there is a sense in which there is a clock and we don't know how long ours will be, but like, 
I have a sense of urgency, I guess. And I don't think I had clarity, but I always have this sense of urgency. So I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do it right away. So when I went to college, I majored in neurobiology, thinking maybe the thing that I would grow up to be would be the thing that everybody else in my family seemed to be, which is like a doctor or a professor of medicine. When I was in college, though, something happened that I didn't expect, which is I started volunteering and, you know, I tried all different things, but the thing that really stuck with me was working with kids. So I was like a, you know, after school tutor and I ended up being a big sister for a little girl named Maria. Um, I think more than a kind of like, you know, like intellectual, like, oh, hey, you know, we should work on social equity at the beginning of the lifespan. Like that just seems logical. I mean, there was a, a little bit of that, but I think it was mostly just emotional. Like I just mm-hmm. like kids. They're awesome. I grew up to be a professor of psychology. It was a very long and winding path. I didn't start graduate school until I was 32. I spent some time teaching and running some summer programs for kids, et cetera, and more. And now I study one dimension in which I think we hope kids will develop, and that is character strengths related to effort. So I study self-control and and grit. But I, I think one of the things I hope to get to in this conversation is that um, just because my little life narrative took me down a path that has me studying the psychology of effort, why we try, when we try, why we don't try sometimes, is not to say that it's the only thing or the most important thing about character. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think that always struck me about your work that I want to get into too, of course. But even thinking about you you growing up and really experiencing this curiosity. And and this was this is something that's kind of come up several times is people who who grow up with a sense of curiosity that go on. But then it and then then also experiencing that empathy, that emotional connection to something. And even when you talk about kids and how cool they are, I can see you light up. In your life, when did those two start coming together? Did you start to experience those as, oh yeah, like this this is a something that I sense is is meaningful to me and a, a, maybe a sense of purpose in my life? When I say that, you know, oh, I went to graduate school when I was 32, you know, trust me, I would have gone when I was 22 if I had had the clarity and the sense of like, oh, this is how I'm going to braid together my curiosity about human behavior with my affection for kids. And yeah, no, I didn't know that for 10 years when I didn't quite know where I was going to take my career, though, again, I had a sense of urgency and urgency without clarity is pretty torturous, actually. Right, Um, right. I think that where it started to come together was when I taught in public schools in um, New York City and San Francisco, I ended up in Philadelphia teaching in a charter school as the last stint in my teaching. I think I realized, uh, like, A, that my interest and affection for kids was real. So, like, I hadn't, like, you know, lost my fondness for hanging around with young people. But B, I thought you know, what can I, like, with my own strengths, like, bring to this? And I thought, like, I like words. I like writing. Also, Mm -hmm. I like analysis, and I'm I'm interested in human behavior. And there, I have to say, it was a little bit of a top-down decision. It was a little bit of a, like, okay, if I wrote down on a piece of paper that I like to write and I like to analyze data and I'm interested in human nature and I want to help these kids, maybe I should go get a PhD in psychology so that I can understand better when kids try, when they don't, why that is, and how we can help them, you know, figure out 
when and how to try, you know, longer, harder, better, um, yeah. and when not to, of course. So that's kind of what happened in that decade. And I cried a lot during that decade because mm. I think for many many of us, maybe most of us, it's not the hard work that's really the challenge. It's figuring out what to work hard on. Yeah. And that was certainly the case for me. Yeah, that's interesting. And and when you think back to that time and where you are today, and you think back about the people around you, who do you think were kind of some of your champions of your purpose and, and really helped invest in you to foster that urgency and that curiosity and, and that uh, sense of, of purpose? You know, curiosity seems to me like the flame that we already start with as, as long as it, like people don't snuff it out. You know, mm, it's not like you have yeah. to give a kid curiosity. It's like they are curious. Like at what point do we, you know, like cover the flame so that, they, you know, it's extinguished and like, can we not do that? And of course, there are people who can fan the flame. One person really leaps to mind when you ask that question, Ben, and that is um, I had a college professor. She taught calculus and I um, had to take it because I was a neurobiology major. So uh, reluctantly with all the other majors who had to take calculus, I, you know, sat in this classroom and then I discovered that this teacher named Robin was just amazing. I mean, she was a wonderful teacher of math, but also like a wonderful human. And you felt when you were sitting in that lecture hall and she was teaching you like what a second derivative was and, you know, like a metaphor about how to understand, you felt loved. I mean, mm. like that's the best way to put it. Like you felt a, like a genuine sense of caring. Mm -hmm. And I got to know Robin because, as I said, I was doing more and more tutoring and involvement in the community. And, you know, not surprisingly, this math professor was completely 100% you know, uh, like supportive of that. And she said, oh, you know, I'm also involved. Like I'm volunteering too. And there's this thing called the algebra project. Like maybe you would want to come and help with that. And so during that time, you know, we were meeting with school teachers and she was trying to, you know, help these school teachers who had never really had proper training in mathematics to understand like deeply what algebra really was so that they could help their students better. And anyway, I'll just say full circle, right? That was more than 25 years ago. And now I have a 19-year-old daughter, my oldest of two, who literally has the same math professor, Robin, and oh, wow. just this week completed a freshman seminar class on, on math and public education and equity. And Happy to say that, A, Robin is still teaching uh, in her caring, yeah. loving way. B, she's still 100% uh, committed to, you know, helping everyone. And mostly, I think, you know, her heart is with the kids who have the least advantages. And C, just on a personal note, my 19-year-old is like all in on, yes. on education. So I, I'm kind of like, wow, there, there are a lot of things that I could say are blessings in my life. But like, that's at the, at the top. Yeah, that is an amazing story, that intergenerational influence that changed your trajectory and then also uh, changes your daughter's trajectory. What a powerful story. And, and I love that image of, of the, like just finding that, that spark in every kid, that there's something that's there that if the world doesn't snuff it out. I have a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And I often think of that too, Angela, where I, I'm just looking at them light up for some of the the most beautiful things that they discover and they do and, and, and just saying, oh, please don't let the world stuff that out. And also that, that story of, of 
really just care and the power of caring, even for a calculus, that a caring teacher uh, motivates people to learn. And I was uh, when I read uh, your interview in the '74, and of course I've I've heard you speak several times. You talked about this this group of expert teachers that you met with or meet with every Thursday. I think it was at like six twenty or something. And and that every time you got off the phone, you thought if only every kid had teachers like those, then we'd be okay. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about those teachers and what what characteristics about them and and things that struck you as shapers of character. I'll tell you about um, one of these teachers because I was quite literally just exchanging emails with him this morning, um, and his name is Phil Bressler. The teachers that I like to talk to um, are like Phil in that they really are like, you know, doing so much for their students that goes, I think, beyond the formal job requirements. Phil teaches AP economics and social studies in Baltimore. And um, he actually was a Domino's pizza executive um, at one point. And then he sort of like, you know, woke up one day and thought like, it's not a bad thing to deliver pizza on time to people. (laughs) And, you know, when I go to my deathbed, like, is this the life that I want to have led? And and so he switched careers and became a teacher. He's now been a teacher for, you know, quite quite some time. So he and I were just uh, recently talking about gratitude. Now, a newspaper journalist who wanted to profile Phil might focus on his transition from Domino's. They might focus on the fact that he um, gets his um, students to actually get, like, I think a world record number of AP fives on the exam. And these are not kids from privileged backgrounds. So they might focus on that. Like, actually, I think he, in my knowledge anyway, to like, you know, is one of the teachers who's been able to help his students get literally perfect scores. That's not a five out of five. That is getting nothing wrong. And typically, each year on a given AP exam, there might be only a dozen such teachers around the world. So they might focus on that. But what I would focus on if I were doing a profile of Phil Bressler is that I have never met um, somebody who cares more about students. He, He signs off every email with teaching is about heart and soul. And like anything that I ever like find or read about and share that has something to do that could be helpful to kids, like, oh, here's an article about gratitude or here's an article about like what makes a meaningful relationship or what builds trust. Phil like reads it, emails me about it, writes a note to his own kids. (laughs) So for example, like I send out these weekly notes, as you know, like the tip of the week, you know, one actionable piece of scientific advice for parents and also teachers. Phil started reading those and he said, I'm going to write one to my own students in my words every week. He started and uh, this is now, I think, more than a year ago. And like he never stopped, even when he had a heart attack. The next tip, how I found out, I'm like reading his tip and he was like, and then last week I had a heart attack. And (laughs) what I learned was that like, I'm so grateful that I have something to live for. And that is my students. And And I was just like, wow. So when I say... If you close your eyes and you imagine that every young person around the world, uh, no matter the lottery of the zip code that they were born in or their other circumstances, like if they had somebody like Phil Bressler Mm -hmm. in their life, in their corner, you're like, oh, wait, that's a different world than we live in. Um, So just this morning, I said I was, you know, exchanging emails with Phil and um, we were talking about gratitude, right, which he doesn't teach. He's a, you know, AP econ, you know, social studies teacher. 
But this is the kind of person that I think kids need in their lives. And then he, you know, basically um, said to me that, like, for example, you know, when as a teacher, he receives gratitude from one of his students, like, you know, and when he sees a teacher in his school get a little letter just around now, just around this time of the school year where students are maybe reflecting a little bit, that it can make an enormous difference because it makes you feel appreciate, et cetera. So that's the sort of thing that I'm getting. It's not really a two-way exchange. I think I'm definitely the beneficiary in our friendship, but that's a sketch. Yeah, I love that. I love that story. And I love uh, where we're starting with this before you move to Grit even, because I think most likely most listeners have heard grit and have used grit and talked about grit. And that that took off as this really incredible, helpful concept that gave language to something that just made sense to people. And, And we'll talk a little bit about what that is. But that foundation of love, that foundation as a really powerful motivator is really uh, critical too and how that's related to performance. And I think in one interview, you talked about William James's uh, lectures. He was the great, of course, uh, psychologist uh, that was way ahead of his time in what he was talking about. And you use this quote, and I won't say it in Latin. I'll let you do that. But it says, (laughs) don't make me do that. (laughs) Teach students like they're good and love them. I remember quoting William James right then at the very end, the last sentence of my teaching statement. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, like, I think the most important thing, um, and we, you know, started here actually meant like, is just to love your students. I mean, like, if you really care, first of all, they know. They also know when you care less. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. So there's no faking it with young people. And they forgive you so much and they appreciate so much, you know, like, you log in on the wrong link and you screw up the homework assignment and you forgot to tell them that there was extra credit. But if you really care, Mm. and we've all been students, right? So we know this in our hearts, right? It's like, oh, somebody really cares about you. Then the rest is detail, you know? And so um, I'm not a perfect teacher, but I really care about my students. Yeah. Yeah. And that care can draw out the best. And and instead of, I think sometimes we think we have to put things in students and we have to, to kind of give them what we know. And in some ways, as we talk today, I think about how do we draw those out? How do we recognize that light? How do we fan that flame? How do we know that they are known and that they are seen and that they can offer something to this world? And that sometimes we underestimate just the power of that. It's obviously not the only thing. We have to talk about challenging growth and we have to talk about opportunities for young kids to develop grit and other uh, character traits. But that foundation is something we all can do. That's something we all can do is, is greet, you know, small things. And those practices, as you describe them uh, from your expert teachers, I think is a, a really good reminder for us. So, yeah, I'm not one of those, you know, like, idealists who say that like kids don't need to be taught anything. Of course they need to be like, nobody's born knowing how to do calculus or, you know, the sort of things I would teach them in a psychology lecture. But I really do think it's more of a dialogue than a monologue. Mm -hmm. And especially when, as, as young people become teenagers, right? So when they turn the corner from being a child to being um, an adolescent and then a young adult, you know, more and more, they have a very strong instinct to be heard, to be seen, to be valued for their own opinion. And if you keep monologuing and just like telling students like, do this, do that. No, you don't have any choice. (laughs) Like, oh, you disagree with me, but I'm right. It's a lose-lose really. And so I'm just, you know, fortunate to be able to like continue to hang around these, you know, adolescents and young adults to, uh, you know, they keep me, they keep me learning. 
Yeah. Let's get into that too, because I think when we think about the performance context, right, is we we all live in a world where performance matters and it's important often for us to be able to perform under stress or under pressure or or to really have a long-term aim or goal in, in mind. And of course, this is an incredible concept that uh, emerged when you begin to study this. And, and I can't tell you how many times, Angela, from my work with athletes and my work with students and parents, how many of them just loved your book. And they, they talked about grit as such an important thing. And, and even me as a parent of really saying, okay, I have to find that balance of when to allow uh, even my six-year-old and three-year-old to feel frustrated and to work through that frustration. And even though my heart says, oh, you know, I want to jump in there, I know that making it easier for them is not going to help them. And I think uh, in some ways it's because the way I grew up that I want to provide also a better life for my boys. And I think finding that balance of how do we help people develop, especially young kids, but into high school years, develop that passion and perseverance to get through difficult times or to, to really keep pursuing their goals despite adversity. And so I would love for you to just kind of get into to now this topic that has always on the forefront of your mind now and talk to our audience a little bit about that, about the importance of grit in a performance context now that we've kind of laid that foundation of love and care. So when you want to achieve something, I mean, quite literally anything that's hard and meaningful to you, you know, you want to make it through West Point and join the U.S. Army, or you want to see some change in equity in your neighborhood or your community, or, you know, you want to become a better teacher, like literally anything that's hard and meaningful to you, you could ask the question like, well, what is the nature of that task? And I think the surprising thing, maybe in part, because it's not what you experienced at the beginning is like, how long can you stay with it, right? People might think, well, how good are you at this? Like how mm -hmm. easily does it come to you? That's talent. And that of course must matter to whether you accomplish or don't accomplish this goal. Also like just the energy you bring, that intensity at the beginning, like how much enthusiasm do you like, how excited are you at the beginning? But so much of, you know, being a civic activist or a great teacher or officer in the army is not like day one, how easily do things come to you and how excited are you and enthusiastic, but more like day 4,012, right. how you doing? You know, like, where's your mind right yes. now? And like, did you ask for one suggestion in the last 24 hours about how you could do things better? And did you take that suggestion and then work on it? And I think one of the things I've discovered about achievement is that people who have a combination of passion and perseverance over really long periods, not just for a day or a week, but but are able to sustain it for, when we're talking about grownups, I mean, really years, these are the remarkable and rare individuals who are able to keep going and to wake up and, and keep fighting. And again, I think in a way it surprised even me, though I study this for a living, because at the very beginning, it's just sort of like, oh, well, I guess the people who are going to be successful are talented. And maybe the people who are going to be successful are just like wildly energetic. But stamina, I think, is at least as important as, as those two things. And that's really what grit is, stamina in your passion, stamina in your perseverance. Yeah, this is a, something I care deeply about, as too, as we think about achievement context, is because I think about that, that fire that is fanning this, this fire for youth who are 
have even a sense of grit and a passion and they're developing passion and perseverance. And then do you think there's ever a point where that fire can actually uh, become almost too hot? <laughs> where it, if really that pursuit of excellence is something that I have, that I have grit towards, and where is, how do you find, how do you find that? Is it, is there such thing as a too gritty of a person? You know, when I look at my data and, you know, if I have a big data set with, you know, everybody's grit score, which is a score that I, you know, I, I have a short questionnaire and it asks you things like, you know, do you finish what you begin? And, you know, how consistent are your interests over years? So you, you have a grit score and then you have outcomes, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, how happy this person is. And, you know, in that context, did they, you know, um, drop out or did they finish the commitment, et cetera? I do not find that at the very top of the grit scale, things get bad. You know, I don't find that there's some, you know, happy point that is between the extremes. And in, in most of my, and actually all the data that I've looked at, it's never that it's like, you know, worse at the very top. However, I think there's two things that I'm not measuring. And so I think there's the possibility that you could be too gritty. One is I'm not measuring other people's outcomes. Right. You know, what if you are the child of somebody who is fanatically (laughs) gritty, you know, like, is it good for you to have um, a parent who is singly focused on their work? Um, Maybe not. And there's good reason to think that there's collateral damage in the life of a super achiever. And then the second thing is that, you know, so often in my data sets, because it's what I set out to study, like I'm studying the effect of grit on achievement, mm-hmm. but what about other things, you know, sure. like, are you a nice person? <laughs> like, are you an honest person? Like, yeah. so I think there are other life outcomes that are important other than achievement and even happiness. Cause I have measured that, that, that I'm not looking at, and maybe they're could be a downside of being extremely gritty on those other outcomes, either your own or, as I mentioned, you know, your loved ones. Yeah, I think that's a really another important point that I've heard you talk about is the complexity of how uh, relationships and other things interact with grit. The grit is really important to achievement and it's an essential uh, ingredient to, uh, to achievement. But there's other essential ingredients to life and thriving. And you highlight that in Character Lab and the research that you're doing there. And I love the definition you have on on the website in, in Character Lab of character. It's intentions and actions that benefit both the individual and others. And I think that begins to develop also all of those important characteristics or character strengths around grit that is, as we think about uh, the whole person and you talk about the the heart, the will, and the strength of mind, heart, and will, right? And could you talk a little bit about that model of character? Because I think it's a great model and it, it just makes sense. You know, the word character has its lovers and its haters. And the term was chosen for the nonprofit Character Lab, and actually not by me, to be completely honest. The two educators whom I met about a decade ago who said, hey, we should start a nonprofit their names were Dave and Dominic, and they're still on the board of Character Lab. And they said, let's start a nonprofit that brings scientists and educators together to help kids you know, learn how to grow up better. And they said, let's call it Character Lab because character is what Martin Luther King said was one of the main purposes of education. Uh, King said when I think he was about 18 years old uh, in an essay, he wrote um, that character and intelligence, this, these are the two true goals of education. And then Aristotle and Marie Curie, uh, not Marie Curie, uh, Maria Montessori. So we called it character. And then 
I later discovered that um, other people preferred other terms like social emotional learning or 21st century skills, or I think sometimes economists call these non-cognitive skills. I don't think it's a battle to be one. And I think there's reasons why people choose the language they choose. What I think this disagreement among terminology hides is a lot of agreement about what it is that we hope our young people would go to. I mean, how many moms and dads would disagree with a list like honesty, Uh kindness, (laughs) empathy, gratitude, you know, uh, generosity, curiosity, creativity, grit, proactivity. I mean, you know, so, so I hope we don't get stuck in a, uh, fruitless, you know, battle of egos about like whose terminology is right. Now, taking the definition I um, offered there on the website, there's, I think, a part of character, which is your actions. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't really be a generous person and never give things away. Right. You can't be a grateful person and never say thank you. But the intentions part is also important. So if you give things away and say thank you because you think your teacher will give you a better recommendation on your common app so you can get into a better school, that's not the intention of gratitude really, right? Gratitude is like just an expression of of, a genuine appreciation for what others have done for you. So I think actions and their intentions are important. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of like benefiting yourself and others, you know, just to interpret Aristotle a little bit here and maybe to try to understand what Martin Luther King was getting at, you know, when he was 18 years old, I think there is a really like a, a kind of important um, note to say that like when you are a grateful person or a creative person or, you know, maybe a greedy person too, um, these aspects of character, your life does go better for yourself. Yeah. And at least as important, it goes better for the people around you. And all of those things that we named that every mom and dad and -hmm. every teacher and coach like really deeply wants their kids to, to develop. Like when you just think about each and every one, you're like, yep, that makes things go better for you and for the people around you. And I, I think that's, to me, um, why it's uh, so intuitive, I think, that, of course, we care about these things. What's less straightforward is how, as the grownups in the world of children, like how exactly we help cultivate it. Yeah, I was wanting to get into that a little bit, too, because I know, I mean, I think First of all, I, I, I think that's a real example of thinking about the intentions behind the actions that that we have to be careful as adults and, and around youth and as we train youth up in character or uh, social emotional learning, that we can't just emphasize the result because then the behavior can be of gratitude or prosociality can be only self-focused at that point and instrumental in a way. And so how do we help what are some ways that you have found in research or the work you've done to really integrate the, these behaviors, these character strengths, or these social emotional learning uh, competencies into that sense of identity of young people, that it's, it is a part of who they are and who they want to be in the world. And, and, you know, that idea of identity being uh, who am I and what can I contribute to the world? And can you talk a little bit about identity? Because I know that's a big issue that comes up uh, when we talk about things like this. There is this quote from Hillel, you know, if I am not for myself, then who is for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? If mm. not now, then when? Say that one more time, Angela, because I want to <laughs> make sure people get it. <laughs> Sorry to put the pressure on, but I love yeah, that. Right. If I am not for myself, who is for me? 
if I'm only for myself, what am I? Mm -hmm. If not now, then when? Obviously translated from the Hebrew, presumably, right? Because it's um, uh, Hillel, the Jewish sage. And I think the first line is, you know, like, if I'm not for myself, then who's going to take care of me is is the intuition, right? Like you do have to, I think, you know, think about how to advance your skills and your, so obviously take care of yourself. And that is part of character. Yeah. But that second line really hits home, right? Like if I'm only for myself, what am I? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of person am I? I think of my mom when I hear that. My mom is just the most generous mm. person I have ever met. Uh, she's 86. And literally, if you called her and you're like, hi, I'm Ben. Unfortunately, I need like half of everything you have. <laughs> she would say, OK, uh, you know, it's like without a hesitation, like she didn't have to know you. She'd be like, OK, you know, I'll figure it out. So, you know, if you are only for yourself, what are you? The kind of person you are, I think when most of the young people that I work with, you know, answer that question, the sort of person that they really want to be mm-hmm. um, and they, the identity they want to have is the sort of person who is mm-hmm. kind to others, honest, caring, um, hardworking, et cetera, as mm-hmm. well. And I think this identity piece is um, something which in a way I think uh, like is so intuitive. And then when you ask yourself, like, could I define identity yeah. in a sentence? It's hard. Here's the sentence that I've come to think might be useful. I think when we think of identity, like the sort of person you are, it really is like, first of all, like a category more than a continuum. Like, I don't think people say like, well, the sort of person I want to be is like a seven out of 10 on honesty or like, right. like <laughs> fairly generous. It's like, I want to be a kind person. Mm-hmm. I want to be a generous person, not an unkind person and not a selfish person, right? So it's a categorical kind of uh, label that we would um, aspire to. And it comes with a whole script, you know? It's like, oh, I want to play the good person in the, in, in the story, the sort sort of person who does this, the sort of person when you are insulted, you know, does not uh, strike back, you know, with equal or greater force. So I think identity is very important to character. I think when we're talking about young people, so much of their identities comes from the adult role models in their Mm -hmm. lives, Mm -hmm. both what they enact in their own behavior. If you are a kind parent or a kind teacher, I think you're the young people who are like are hanging around you all the time and watching you as an example will begin to feel like that's a script that they understand and that they you know want to step into and play that role themselves. I also think that the language we use, I have unfortunately been in classrooms that are not like the Phil Bressler classroom. I remember when I was a, a volunteer all those years ago, in college, there was this one teacher whose name I will not repeat, but I will just tell you, I know it by heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when students would uh, like show curiosity about things, like we were just talking about, the curiosity is a, a character strength, a strength of mind. Like they would say, you know, like I would walk in, I would say like, hey, I have an after school program. We're going to build like a hot dog cooker made out of tinfoil and learn about solar energy. Like who wants to do it? And one little boy's hand goes up and he's like, I want to do it. I want to do it. And then the teacher literally says like, not for you. Mm. That's for the smart kids. And I was like, mm-hmm. now that is an interesting, like, like that kid will never forget that day. Yeah. However, instead, if the teacher said like, Zachary, 
I love that you raise your hand because you are a curious person. Yeah. Like go go with Angela down to the end of the hallway and see what's going on. It's like, okay, the language that we use with kids. It matters. And the language we like to, you know, to give them the labels that they're going to internalize. So, so I'm hoping that we can say things to kids, you know, like, wow, I just love that you did that yesterday. You are a kind person. Like what an honest person you are. Like you had the opportunity to cheat on that exam because nobody was proctoring it during the pandemic. And you didn't cheat. Mm-hmm. And that is called honesty. And I respect you for it. Right. Yeah. So so I think those those two things, among others, are important ways. You know, our role modeling and also the language we use that kids are going to internalize. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that that, that idea of we internalize the messages often of the people around us. And those internalized messages become our self-story in a lot of ways. And I, I had a teacher just like that, and I won't mention his name either. But, <laughs> but you happen for yeah, comedy. I know, either. I know it is. I remember the first class I walked in, he said, oh, no, not another Holtberg. They're not good at math. Oh, my goodness. And you know, the next day I left and got into another math class. And it was uh, one that I thought, so for a while I struggled with that narrative. And I think we we don't realize the power, both for good, of creating stories of good and, and hope and these self-narratives around character, but also the things that we can do unintentionally. So, well, this has been amazing. For me, I think there's a couple things I'm definitely going to take from this, this podcast, one of them being the pursuit of excellence and going all in for something and having grit is an amazing opportunity for kids in life. And we want to create structures and fan that flame. But we also have to understand, and I think you say this in one of your interviews, that the motivation behind that often is unconditional love, that there's often a a love that's drawing this out so that the motivation is sustainable over time. Because if it's not sustainable over time, it's not grit. (laughs) And so we can motivate people out of fear. We can motivate people out of, because people will get motivated. But what's the sustainable fuel right now that we need to really help people connect to that sense of purpose and even be able to transform pain into purpose, which is a powerful motivator. And and so to end today, I know you probably get asked this question a lot, but I'm going to ask it because I think every time I've heard you kind of answer it, it's been really, I think, enlightening. If I'm a teacher and a practitioner out there right now, and we have gone through a tremendously hard year, and it's been harder for some, for many folks and, and many youth, uh, communities of color have, of course, experienced what they've been experienced historically, a trauma historically of racism and oppression, but it's it's even been more visual in today's era. We've also experienced the pandemic and the challenge of getting through that. And what are some things that you think are really critical to get through these difficult times? And what are some things that you would say to, not necessarily to the teachers or practitioners on, how, on what they would do for, for the kids, but to them personally, to them as teachers? Because often we talk about them creating the classroom, but they're tired and, and they're burnt out. And I feel that way as a parent. I can't imagine the heroes that are going to work trying to teach online. So what are some things you would say to them kind of to close us out? You know, I've I've never interviewed a paragon of grit, a super achiever who didn't nevertheless have bad days and bad months and even bad years. And sometimes when I'm interviewing like a younger paragon of grit, they don't know that, you know, they haven't yet had that like really rough patch, right? Where things didn't work out, you know, in something that was really important to them or whatever it is, you know, personal 
losses and sometimes mental health struggles very often, actually. So these younger paragons of grit then have this idea that like, wait a second, I'm a really gritty person. Like, I never like really lose my balance and like do a face plant. Mm -hmm. But I like to tell these not yet wiser and older paragons of grit that like, oh yeah, let me tell you. Yeah. And I can't reveal names, but like literally everybody I study has multiple face plants and they're not graceful and they're mm -hmm. not pretty. Yeah. And when you're on the ground, you're not sure you are going to get up again. And you're questioning everything, you know, your identity, your values, your worth, your future. And yet you do. So I think one of the things to carry with us, each and every one of us, is that, you know, like you're human, you know, and life is hard, really hard. And so you're going to screw up. And also sometimes even when you don't screw up, things are just going to be bad. For me, like a lot of the pandemic was was fine. February, for whatever reason, uh, was like really hard for me. I was really tired. I felt exhausted. I wasn't very productive. I was like not in a good mood. I wasn't sleeping well. For a lot of us, we are sort of acquainted with our own burdens. But maybe the second thing I would say is that um, not only are you going to have bad days, bad weeks, bad years, but also you're going to be around other people who are experiencing the same and you won't know it. So there's this expression that is misattributed to Plato, but it's a great expression. So it's too bad Plato didn't say it. Somebody <laughs> said it, which is that um, be kind to all you meet for each carries their own heavy burden. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's, I hope a lesson that the pandemic has taught us is that, you know, the burdens that people carry, you know, and in the, in the last, you know, 14 months, I have become somewhat aware. I won't say I'm enlightened, but some, more aware of race. You know, for like 51 years, I was just sort of oblivious to race. My parents didn't talk about it. My aunts and uncles didn't talk about it. Now I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. For some people who are black and brown in this country, it's a different country. It's a completely different experience. It's like, okay, that's a burden that I can't really understand, but at least I can understand that there is a burden that I don't understand. Yes. And then, you know, just to never make assumptions, right? Like, you know, it used to be when a student wouldn't turn in homework in my class, I would be like annoyed and impatient. You're like, oh, and I have to email you. And now I first ask before anything else, are you okay? Yeah. Literally. I got yeah. that from one of those super teachers. He was like, here's what you should do. And I was like, what should I do? He's like, ask exactly this question. Are you okay? So I asked, are you okay? And I was like, here's my cell phone number. Are you okay? And, you know, and then if they're okay, then we can talk about like what happened. And it's a different mindset, I think, you know, and, and I think, again, I'm no saint. I'm really not. And, but, but at least in the last year or so, I think I've become newly aware of the burdens that every single one of us carries. And sometimes we're going to fall down with that burden on our back. And sometimes people around us are going to fall down. And, and when people fall down around us, it's like, don't jump to evaluative judgments because you don't know what heavy burden they carry. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll, we'll close it out with that. And I just want to thank you, Angela, for your time and for your energy and your passion and the important work that you're doing. You can find Angela in lots of ways. Her, I love your podcast. There's no stupid questions. So if you have a question for Angela and her co-host in that, you can check out that podcast and of course her book and there's lots of ways to find her. So we'll link to those in our podcast as well. But most of all, thank you again, Angela. I always enjoy talking to you. Same here, Ben. I look forward to our next conversation. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank our guest, Dr. Angela Duckworth, for appearing on the show, as well as our support staff who made this podcast happen. 
This podcast was also made possible through the generous support from a grant from the John Templeton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Tune in next time when we talk to Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang about the power of relationships, brain science, and transcendent purpose. Thank you.